0: I have the great pleasure in welcoming Emma Johnson to this Inside Precision Medicine podcast. Emma is Assistant Professor in Psychiatry at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She has a PhD in Psychology, Behavioral, Psychiatric and Statistical Genetics from the University of Colorado Boulder and a BSPH in Biostatistics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill emma's long-term research goal is to better understand the genetic architecture of psychiatric disorders particularly focusing on substance use and addictions within addiction she is particularly interested in the study of more commonly used drugs such as alcohol and cannabis one current area of research interest is characterizing the relationships between substance use disorders and other psychiatric disorders and mental health conditions including schizophrenia suicidal thoughts and behaviours and chronic pain. A second area of research interest is using approaches from the population and evolutionary genetics fields to learn more about the genetic architecture of psychiatric disorders. She is currently one of the analysts for the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium Substance Use Disorders Working Group and a co-investigator in the collaborative study on the genetics of alcoholism. Emma, welcome. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you for taking the time to to be with us. So maybe we can start by diving straight in and and getting a sense of how you became initially attracted to the world of psychiatry.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Damien. I'm really excited to be here and chat with you. That's a great question. I have always been interested in in science and especially biology and genetics. And I wanted to try and kind of find a way to marry that with my other interest in statistics um, and math. And um, the field of statistical genetics kind of felt like a a nice place to be. And I've always been interested in human behavior. So as an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I worked as a research assistant in a lab that studied the development of alcohol, dependence and um, animal models, actually. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I got my start, kind of in the world of of substance use uh, disorders research. And um, from there, I went to Boulder for my PhD and became more interested in in schizophrenia as well and and other psychiatric disorders. And you know, lots of people with schizophrenia use alcohol, tobacco. Cannabis uh, and other drugs, and that got me kind of thinking about how my genetics contribute to that co-occurrence of these different mental health conditions and physical health traits as well uh, with substance use and addictions.
0: Okay, great. And where are you based geographically? Are you, you mentioned on your website you you're you're based in Missouri, but um, when you were at uh, is that is that always been home for you?
1: No, I, I grew up in North Carolina um, in the Asheville area, went to, to school uh, for my undergrad there and then relocated to Boulder for my PhD. And then okay. I came to St. Louis, Washington University School of Medicine here in St. Louis in Missouri uh, for a postdoc with Dr. Doctor Arpina Agrawal. Uh-huh. That's when I began as an analyst with the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium um, Substance Use Disorders Group. And I... Never left. <laughs>
0: Never left. Yes. Yeah. Well,
1: yep. still
0: here. <laughs> You're doing something right. Well, St. Louis is doing something right. So that's great. Well, listen, um, let's let's um let's let's dig into a little bit more in terms of your research and what your focus is. You've got sort of three arms to your research, from what I can gather, but I think for for the maybe the purpose of today's discussion, we'll focus on on two of those areas that that you know, primarily the genetics of substance use disorders. Uh, and unique and shared genetic factors underlying co-occurring mental health conditions and behaviors. but but maybe we can go through each of those areas and you can tell us a little bit about the projects you've undertaken and those you're currently working on or perhaps even working towards as it were. I mean, if we start with the work you're doing in substance use disorders, maybe you can tell us about the the, the genome-wide methods you're using to elucidate the sort of genetic framework, if you will, of, of cannabis and alcohol addiction, I, I gather they're the two main areas that you're you're focusing on. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so I've mainly focused on more commonly used substances like alcohol and and cannabis. And as an analyst with the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, or the PGC, um, it's a lot easier to say. Mm-hmm. I led a a genome wide association study of cannabis use disorder. Uh huh. And so, uh. A genome-wide association study or a GWAS, for those who aren't familiar. Um, in this case, because we're studying a, a case control uh, design, cannabis use disorder, this is where we're essentially comparing the genomes of people who uh, have been diagnosed with cannabis use disorder to people who have not been diagnosed with that disorder, mm-hmm. and essentially just looking for uh, differences in the DNA sequence that might be associated with Someone's likelihood or liability uh, for developing cannabis use disorder. And so, in that study, we, you know, it was really a a huge team science effort. We combined across, I think, 20 studies in total. So, 20 different GWAS were meta analyzed. Um, That included studies with the PGC, as well as a large study in Denmark uh, using the iSych registry data Mm -hmm. Uh, in a large um, study in Iceland, decode genetics. So we we collaborated with those researchers um, to produce this uh, relatively large, for its time, (laughs) genome-wide association study Mm -hmm. of cannabis use disorder. Interestingly, we can also use methods to actually look at how um, cannabis use disorder is genetically correlated with other traits as well. And so what we did was we compared, you know, how genetically correlated is cannabis use disorder with things like BMI, depression, schizophrenia, um, someone's educational attainment, so how many years of schooling they've received. Mm -hmm. And when we compared that with genetic correlations for what we're calling cannabis ever use, so just have you ever tried cannabis in your lifetime, those genetic correlations actually look somewhat different, which was a little bit surprising to us, but this suggests that the genetic factors that underlie someone's likelihood of just trying cannabis in their lifetime—that's somewhat different from someone who actually develops cannabis use disorder. This more severe phenotype.
0: Okay, I got you. And I'm assuming the, the the Danish and the Icelandic cohorts were were picked. Well, they may well have been. You may well have chosen that cohort because. That was the cohort that had the data you needed, but I and mean, that's obviously a very homogeneic uh, population. There did that did that play into why you particularly picked that particular geographic region?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Really, uh, the the ISIC data and the the Danish registries just have um, so much data available on hmm. on their participants, on their individuals, because it is okay. this long established um, registry system. Mm-hmm. You know, and in, in, in Iceland, the the Decode Genetics study that's that's also a huge, as you say, relatively homogeneous sample. Mm-hmm. But but really, it was just that they had data available on on cannabis use disorder, um, whether that was using DSM diagnoses, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) I should know that or ICD codes from, from like electronic health records uh, as they had in Denmark. So, you know, how cannabis use disorder was assessed varied slightly amongst our different studies. Um, But really our goal with that GWAS meta-analysis was just to get as large of a sample as possible. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: We were, you know, really starting with, with pretty small studies there. And so uh, it was really just important to, um, as much as possible, maximize our sample size. I mean, we don't want to totally sacrifice having a a relatively clean phenotype there, but we really want to maximize our yeah. statistical power by, by building the largest um, study possible.
0: Okay. Were there any other particular databases available or had you just got to a point where you felt that you had enough statistical power there or big enough databases? Was there any other areas of the... The planet that you could have gone to perhaps maybe in, in APAC or or were, were you just you know you know re- responding and reacting to what was available literally at the time or people that wanted to work with you obviously there has to be <laughs> there has to be engagement I, I realize that these 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 people want to have to, to to sort of collaborate but
1: uh yeah and you know I think um I've been lucky having generally good experiences I think You know, most people are happy to collaborate and, Mm. you know, we all want to work towards this common goal. We want to better understand these disorders so we can develop better treatments and prevention. Um, So, you know, I think most people are generally happy to collaborate. You know, I think it's a matter of how far our reach extends and, and, you know, of course we do need to extend farther. In this particular GWAS, we did include individuals of European ancestry that Mm -hmm. was that made up the most of our sample we had a smaller subset of individuals of african ancestry okay but you know again it was much smaller than the number Mm -hmm. of european ancestry Mm -hmm. people in the study and that's an area where um, i really think we we need to work to improve and quickly so so that we're not just studying these european ancestry
0: populations no and i think we'll get there i think as as different parts of the world uh producing their own precision medicine initiatives and uh, large population studies I, I'm confident we'll get there you know in the Middle East and APAC and other you know remote corners of the world you know certainly Africa has started to to up its game I think on the genomic side mm-hmm. so I think you know, in time we'll, we'll definitely be able to get a, a more holistic viewpoint I think definitely risk. I yeah. yeah
1: I think With, momentum is really um picking up there which is great to see
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's great. Okay. So so focusing on polygenic risk scores, you know, obviously, these are a very important tool. And, you know, the the, uh, impact is clear across all different disease uh, states at the moment, certainly in in cancer and other diseases, and and I suppose will have the same impact in psychiatry. I think issues around specificity, and of course, always downstream clinical utility abound. But and of course, you've just mentioned, you know, the lack of predictive power when you when you've got a lack of diversity. But you know, as you say, well, hopefully, we'll get there. But I mean, ultimately, we're we're going to need to look at, you know, we can't look at these just in isolation. We have to look at the environment. We have to look at the exposome. We have to look at all these other different risk factors in 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 totality, don't we, in order to get more precise indicators? But do do you feel that we're on the right path with? Polygenic risk scores. Do you think it's just a matter of time we will get there? Given, I think psychiatry probably has, you know, probably been a, a late entrant, a, a, entrant to, to to PRS scores, probably than other disease areas.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I definitely think we're on the right track. You know, I think things are moving forward quickly with polygenic mm-hmm. risk scores. Certainly for other disease areas. You know, psychiatry, of course is maybe a little bit behind, Mm
0: -hmm. but,
1: you know, like you mentioned, I think some of that is probably due to the complexity of these behaviors, the disorders that we're, that we're studying. And so I do think it's really important that, you know, while we're pushing forward polygenic risk scores and, you know, increasing the sample sizes of GWAS and advancing the methodology for developing polygenic risk scores, also pushing forward on the exposome side, you Mm -hmm. know, looking at, um, Social determinants of health—you know, things like family history, social support—all these different risk and protective factors, you know, apart from the genetic piece, that are also really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think studies like longitudinal studies, like the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study or the ABCD study, I think that will be a really nice place to to kind of study some of these, um, you know, genome and exposome interactions as at these adolescents' age.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, we clearly have a way to go for for psychiatry, I think, for these to be, for PRS to be useful in terms of, um, you know, risk stratification or precision care and treatment, but I think Mm -hmm. we're moving in the right direction.
0: Okay, that's great. I mean, going back to that 2020 study, was there any evidence, I mean, given all other parameters were the same and, and all the... The, the, the different parts of data that was captured in Denmark and Iceland and the US and I think and was it, did you say the UK was it the UK for that study
1: yeah, yeah we probably had some UK studies in there and I think Australia represented Australia
0: too. as well okay i mean was i mean is is that something you've you've looked at in terms of any analysis in terms of the difference in the environment you know because obviously different places around the world will have different environments and Different populations will be exposed to, to different things. Is that something that was been, was able you were able to extrapolate from that data at all, not, or is that just not an area that you were actually looking at for that study as such? Did yeah, just, um, or correlations between. Oh, okay. Well, we saw this in 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 the Nordics. We saw this in the UK, and we saw this in terms of the exposome, the environment, perhaps.
1: No, that's a great point, and certainly a source of. Um, heterogeneity, I think, amongst those different studies from all these different countries around the world, yeah. um, you know, especially in, you know, also in the sense of the legalization status of, of cannabis, even in different states in the U.S. You know, that's not something we really explored closely in that no. 2020 paper. You know, in general, we, you know, for the top, what we call hits of the GWAS, so the most strongly associated genetic variants that we find, you know, we yeah. do generally see pretty consistent effect sizes across all these different cohorts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it does seem that for the top genetic findings, um, at least somewhat, they are consistent across these different environments.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: But I, I think that's a great point and definitely something to be explored more sure. uh, in the future.
0: Okay, brilliant. Okay, so let's maybe d- dig into some of the work you're doing in terms of uh, shared genetic factors and their role in mental health conditions and behaviors, I see that you use genomic structural modeling. I'd be really useful actually if you could begin by explaining what that that is to our audience.
1: Yeah, so um, you know I mentioned genetic correlations earlier, um, uh-huh. and we typically use something called LD score regression to calculate those. Mm-hmm. And so there, we're we're really just concerned with the bivariate correlation between just a pair of traits, right? Like cannabis use disorder and cognition or cognitive function. With genomic uh, sem or genomic structural equation modeling, uh, we can now, you know attempt to model the genomic relationship between more than just two traits. So, for example, we had a paper where we used genomic structural equation modeling to study the relationship between, cannabis use disorder, cannabis ever use, tobacco smoking initiation and nicotine dependence and schizophrenia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we we're able to kind of um, model the genomic relationships between all of these traits simultaneously to see whether, you know if we're accounting for the effects of tobacco smoking, which we know is also associated with schizophrenia mm-hmm. and you know the genomic effects of um, just trying, Cannabis use ever in your lifetime? Do we mm-hmm. still see this robust relationship with cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia? And we do. It turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, genomic sem is this really amazingly useful tool that has really uh, blown up in terms of of being used in the behavioral genetics and psychiatric genetics realm in the past few years, uh, mm-hmm. because it's it's just really nice to be able to kind of look at these different multivariate relationships between all these different psychiatric disorders and behaviors that we're interested in.
0: Mm. Yes. And I suppose it's fascinating because it's trying to tease the tease out the, the, uh, the linkages between all of these. It's, it's, it's very, very complex, isn't it? The overlap. It's, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's, that's going to be the key, isn't it? To be able to get deep enough into it to, to really be able to separate out the relationships and the, the interplay between the genes and the environment and Yeah genetic ancestry, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, but um, yeah, yeah. It'd be very interesting. Um, so, so I know you're doing some research on suicide-related behaviors. Can you explain how some of these findings you think the research you're doing might have in time, important implications in how physicians could take a more holistic clinical assessment as they account for, for other risk factors? Because as you've just rightly said, there are, there are other risk factors at play there, aren't there? It's not just a one-dimensional approach. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. we're looking at this in a in a very different way now, don't we, in terms of of uh, suicide?
1: Yeah, um, that there was a a paper we published, um, I guess a couple of years ago now, and this was mm-hmm. a paper led by um, Sarah Colbert, who is now a graduate student at Mount Sinai. Okay, I believe in the Department of Genetics, and so Sarah thought it would be neat to use genomic structural equation modeling, which we were just discussing, Mm -hmm. to look at the relationships between different substance use disorders. So alcohol, cannabis use disorder, tobacco, and and opioid use disorder, and how those relate to um, different substance use or um, Mm suicide-related thoughts and behaviors. So I believe in that study, we looked at suicidal ideation, um, suicide Mm -hmm. attempt, and um, there was a um, a smaller GWAS available at the time of suicide death as well. right? And so we modeled um, those three phenotypes and our four substance use disorder uh, phenotypes. And in this uh, genomic structural equation model, we also accounted for depression and risk-taking. Mm-hmm. Risk-taking being kind of a, a rough proxy for um, impulsivity. That's uh-huh. not ideal, but um, that's what we had at the time which are known to be risk factors for both substance use disorders and um, suicide. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. What we found was that the um, correlations between some of the substance use disorders and the suicide related phenotypes were actually, you know, rivaling the genetic correlation between suicide and depression, which surprised us a bit that, that those were that strong. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, even accounting for depression, we're still seeing these relationships between substance use disorders and all these different suicide-related phenotypes. And so, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, I'm no clinician. I would not um, (laughs) try to give clinicians advice, but this Mm -hmm. kind of suggested to me that, you know, it might be important. We know that depression uh, is often, you know, considered this really important risk factor for for suicidal thoughts and behaviors, Um, but it seems like substance Use disorders uh, might also be, you know, maybe just as important of a risk factor to consider, you know, if a patient is presenting with with a severe substance use disorder and, you know, especially if that's co-occurring with depression, uh, that person might be at particularly high risk for for suicide.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. So great. No, I see also Emma that you, you know you're focusing on genetics and pain. I mean, we we do know that subtle differences in DNA can have an impact on how people experience pain. I think that that's well documented. And the relationship between chronic pain and depression is becoming more apparent. Uh, estimates of up to sixty percent of chronic pain patients also present with depression. So, is this an area of research you're you're focusing on? Uh, in isolation, or are you looking at pain in terms of its its relationship to, to, to other areas as well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I would say this is an area of growing interest to me, but you know, in line with my other research, I am exploring pain uh, in the context of um, other substance use disorders, especially opioids, of course, mm-hmm. but also other substance use disorders and depression, um, as well as social determinants of health. Right. Um, we know that you know, pain is is highly costly, uh, both to the individuals experiencing it as well as our overall healthcare system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, chronic pain is associated with disability, depression, as you mentioned, overall reduction in well-being. You know, a substantial number of people with chronic pain report losing their jobs because of that chronic pain. So this is really a a high priority area. Opioids remain the frontline treatment for for acute and chronic pain, but we also know that there's an opioid epidemic um, happening. And and so, you know, again, I really think this is an area where we have an opportunity to advance our understanding of of both the genetic factors that contribute to chronic pain, those that contribute to depression and substance use disorders, how these things all overlap and interact, Mm -hmm. Um, whether there are clear causal relationships there, the timing of these different you know, co-occurring conditions and so this is definitely an area where where I'm exploring right now.
0: Okay, wonderful. And given the detrimental effect that you obviously um, talk about there in terms of to society and to individuals, you know alcoholism is is exactly the same and substance abuse, you know it ruins lives and society as a whole, you know, is affected. so how how important, is that research also uh, and how do you think we might be able to to harness this knowledge to implement sort of more preventative measures to support individuals and, and families at risk i mean ultimately we like like all disease it's it's predicting it's going to happen isn't it and it's it's trying to prevent it from happening and, and, and it's getting in there early i suppose not not as straightforward of course when we when we look at alcoholism because there could be many many different reasons for that in terms of familial history there and, and all sorts of uh, life-changing events, but obviously the genetic component too. So it's again, it's complex. But ultimately, these studies will have profound impact at some point, hopefully uh, downstream in the clinic. One hopes. So um, just wanted to get your spin on that, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I hope these studies ultimately have have an impact on, you know, giving clinicians, you know, hopefully a better understanding of of both genetic factors and non-genetic factors that contribute to risk of alcohol use disorder and other substance use disorders. You know, hopefully, eventually polygenic risk scores and other genetic tools will help clinicians better stratify individuals who are at greater risk. You know, that could be used in combination with things like family history, you know, discussing a person's lifestyle and and mm-hmm. stressors and, you know, all these different risk and resilience factors that that go along with genetics and and interact with someone's genetic risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I also would hope that a better understanding of the genetics and biology underlying alcohol use disorders and other substance use Mm -hmm. disorders would somewhat decrease the stigma around these, these uh, disorders, hopefully. I know that's not always been the case, but you know, my hope um, through this research and, you know, through the, discussing this research in the class that I teach with undergraduates here, you know, I hope that just talking about these things and the biology underlying these things can kind of help decrease some of that stigma um, that that these individuals may feel.
0: No, that's a really good point. So behavioral genetics is complex, right? I mean, that's why you picked it, because you wanted to have a very complex... (laughs) (laughs) career <laughs> I mean goodness me you didn't pick an easy one but but much like any other disease we, we face it, it's it is a complex interplay of genetics and environment and we have to approach it from a multi-dimensional perspective I think that's come through abundantly clear in, in, in listening to you talk today given that and given that multi-dimensional perspective you know we also need multi-dimensional teams don't we we need multi disciplinarian approaches we need a group of individuals that can come at these problems from from different angles and it, it struck me when i w- was researching your work and the colleagues and the team that you work you have a really really skilled knowledgeable group of colleagues that are all looking at this from slightly different perspectives you know the use of you know ai machine learning looking at neuroimaging looking at different perspectives of, of psychiatry because uh, it's a very it's deep as as it is wide psychology, there's so much going on. So how important is that team science to actually, you know, working as a team, and how much do you enjoy that that part of of what you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: I love working with the with the teams that I work with. I'm so mm-hmm. lucky to work with you know clinicians, um other PhD researchers. The graduate students and undergraduate students here at WashU um, and at other institutions, as you mentioned, you know, I work with people here who are experts in machine learning, uh, which I know nothing about. Working with clinicians here has, I think, really opened my eyes as well. You know, I I tend to come at things from the you know genetics and statistical side, and you know, listening to clinicians who actually you know treat people with substance use disorders or Work with people who are experiencing chronic pain and an acute pain after surgery. That's really been, I think, eye-opening and, and helpful to me to kind of contextualize the, the research that we're doing since it can sometimes feel a little bit, you know, removed um, from the immediate patient. But yeah, I, I love working with a collaborative team. As we talked about earlier, these big GWAS studies, these genome-wide studies of, of psychiatric disorders really requires uh, this big team science. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to, you know, credit everyone on that team, Um, the people who collected the data, whether that was, you know, recently or, or Mm -hmm. some of these studies are 20, 30 years old. Um, So that data was, you know, started being collected 30 years ago. And so I think it's important to recognize those individuals, Mm -hmm. um, the, you know the data collection side sometimes gets forgotten in these these huge GWAS where the analyses look really cool mm-hmm. and flashy. But you know, really, it takes all of us in that GWAS of cannabis use disorder. We included PRS analyses, we included analyses in in different biobanks across the globe, and and so that really required the the contributions of of lots of different analysts and um, clinicians and and PIs and it's really that's the best part of my job is is getting to work with all these different people from different perspectives and different viewpoints and we don't always agree on the best way to approach some of these problems but we do all have the same end goal in mind which is uh to improve treatment and quality of life for for people with psychiatric disorders
0: yeah no that's great yeah and look you know you don't all have to be singing from the same hymn sheet and you know a little bit of um polarization is healthy i think you know if you can reach a consensus in the end then that's great but i think it it makes you question sometimes the the thoughts you have and i think that's healthy i think we could do with a lot more of that but uh, but that's great thank you i mean and one other thing because i know you really enjoy the teaching side and i think it's really important to mention that because i know you, you felt very privileged to have had some great mentors, and it sounds like you really enjoyed being taught. And I, I, I get a sense that you sort of you really enjoyed the whole giving back and, and paying it forward side. So, how important is that to you in, in balancing out your your, your research endeavors, uh, the, the teaching side?
1: Thanks for asking about that. I do really enjoy teaching. I I wasn't sure that I would. I'm a bit of an introvert, but nice. it's it has really been. I think selfishly, it's been enjoyable for me and Mm -hmm. fulfilling to work with, you know, 100 undergraduate students each fall who are really excited to learn about all these different behavioral genetic methods and, Mm -hmm. and these new findings uh, in our field. You know, we cover everything from the genetics of schizophrenia to the genetics of personality and um, cognitive performance. So it's, yeah, selfishly, I I just find it really fun and um, I think energizing. Again, the work that I do on a day to day basis, the research side, can feel, you know, like we're we're a few steps removed from having, I think, an immediate impact on you know the clinic. Of course, we hope we get there, but with teaching, it it feels like a much more kind of immediate impact on the students. And yeah, I, I've been so lucky. I mean since um, since high school, I feel like having teachers who really took the time to to work with me and and support me and encourage me, you know, in my studies and um, really went above and beyond. Um, and so I hope I can give back somewhat uh, to the students at Washu.
0: No, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you're doing a brilliant job. So that that's wonderful. So listen, let's let's uh, conclude. I, I hear a little birdie tells me you recently won a contest based on a new project you're undertaking. So just so wondering whether you can tell me a little bit more about that, the implications of that, maybe what that project is, what the competition was, um, and uh, any prizes that were on offer that you may have uh, secured. But uh, so, yeah, that, that would be great. We can sort of talk a little bit about that, too
1: yeah, thank you. I was really excited to hear that we won this contest. Um, this was a, a contest hosted by Illumina. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dr. Arpina Agrawal, who is also in psychiatry here at Washu, um originally pointed me to the the contest webpage. and I have recently I had recently put in a grant with um someone in anesthesiology here, Dr. Simone Haritunian, who, I believe is the director of research at WashU's Pain Center, and uh, Dr. Simone Heratunian had a an ongoing project. Um, it's a very unique cohort of surgery patients, and this cohort has data on um, baseline preoperative pain, acute post-op pain, and then um, ecological momentary assessment or EMA data on things like anxiety, depression symptoms. Um, sleep, experiences of pain, uh, medication cravings, and use for 30 days post-surgery. And then data on those those items are also collected at three months and six months post-surgery. So this is a very carefully uh, clinically assessed cohort. And this contest from Illumina will enable us to genotype uh, just over a 1,000 participants from this cohort Mm -hmm. So we're going to use other funding to eventually genotype the entire cohort. Um, But thanks to this prize from Illumina, we can use their Infinium Global Diversity Array to genotype these individuals. And then we'll use their um, polygenic risk score software and the PREDICT module to actually create polygenic scores in the sample for chronic pain and opioid use disorder. So we're hoping that we can then link these polygenic scores to uh, preoperative pain, postoperative pain, uh, any changes there, and then these 30-day real-time symptoms of things like anxiety, pain, depression, and opioid use.
0: Wow, what a worthwhile project. That's going to be fantastic. What's the timeline on that, do you think, from sort of uh, implementation to to sort of data capture?
1: The DNA has already been extracted, um, so it's it's ready to go. And so I think uh, we'll be able to get started on that pretty quickly so really looking forward to that
0: yeah great okay well well done for for winning that and uh and, and i suppose that that gives us a good ending really i look it's been a, a great um a great time chatting to you i've really enjoyed our discussion really appreciate you you sparing the time to come and talk to us about the work that you're doing really really critical work actually uh that uh that is is very much needed and, and thank goodness we have people like you you know beavering away doing this this research because it's so critically important, more than probably at any point, I think, in, in recent history. So I, I I thank you for that and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon, maybe catching up and seeing maybe uh, how your research has progressed. But uh, for now, um, a huge thanks. Lovely to, to have uh, had the time to speak to you and uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Damian.